I think that's one thing that's happened with my generation that didn't happen the generation before me. My parents didn't talk about sex. And most people my age, you, you'll find they didn't really. They had to be very liberated. Uh, they, were, they were shy. I mean, I know my dad would just have been too embarrassed. You know, he used to try and tell me, but it came out terrible. You know, he'd say, see those two dogs over there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said, put some cold water on them. And I, no, no. This is what I'm trying to tell you. Get out of it. You know, I couldn't go for that stuff. What? You're kidding. It's disgusting. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he used to try and tell me through things like that. But I found out of the kids. Really, that's out, you know, aged about 11 or so, 10 or 11, all the kids who don't you know? Oh, God, you know, where have you been? You know, and they tell you, you know, so. And you say, my mother uh, and father would mm, never do anything like that. How dare you suggest it? <laughs> <laughs> where do you think you came from? Oh, uh, well, you've got a point there. <laughs> but, uh, no. Eighties Welcome to Eightiesography in a very special episode of the Paul McCartney interview special. There's something similar for Tears of Fears in view of episode four. It's because I had some extra interview bits that I hadn't used. I used that to cover the period. Uh, for the last episode so collected everything I had and did a Seeds of Love interview gallery practically. and my reason for doing the same for Paul McCartney is twofold maybe even threefold it's old Macca's 80th in the year this is released uh, plus I love McCartney and any chance of asking a McCartney related question of a guest I would always take whether it falls within the remit of the podcast or not which I find with Julian Mendelssohn the other main reason is Chris Hughes so for a bit of background the first interview I got proper was, was Chris Hughes. At the end of the interview I asked him a question about working with McCartney because I knew the next season was going to be on Paul McCartney because originally the podcast was me going through one artist a season, album by album, track by track and that changed once I started doing interviews. So the idea was I'd ask him a question on McCartney and then edit that into the McCartney episode for that year for Flowers in the Dirt. Uh, and he didn't have time to answer that question, he had to go so we, we arranged a, a, a catch up interview during the week. We did another 30 minute chat just on Paul McCartney. So I, I never got a chance to use it. So I've been sitting on this for a while. So I thought it's a big good idea to use it for this, this reason. And I had so many other interviews that had McCartney related uh, subject matter that it seemed like it's a good idea to collate them like I did with Tears of Fears. So that's where we are now. So we start with Chris Hughes and his time working on um, two tracks during the Flowers in the Dirt era. And there's some interesting stuff about mixing. And he confesses to one Adam the Ant single and one Tears of Fear single that he produced. He wishes he could remix, which is interesting. So let's start off this interview gallery with Chris Hughes and his time with Samaka. Chris Hughes. The first time you met him, I believe you met him first of all in the early 80s, is that correct? That was the first time you met um, him? No, let me think. Yes, the f- I- well, actually, it, between working on the tracks with Paul and meeting for the first time wasn't that long, maybe a, a year at the most. Um, I was working at Air Studios in London, in, in central London, um, Oxford Circus. And he was working on, I think, uh, Pipes of Peace. I'm not sure of the chronology there. And so he was working and I was in one of the studios, he was in the other. And I'd sort of see him periodically in the cafe or in the corridor or something. You know, he was always pleasant, always asked, you know, what you're up to and he'd pop in and put his head around the door and, and have a little listen or something, you know. George Martin had invited me in to listen to um, some mixes they'd just done. 
which was great. You know, it was fantastic being invited in to listen to, to their world. And then um, I can't remember exactly how long after I got a call sort of via his manager, really, at the time saying, you know, Paul's got an album he's been working on. There's time restrictions and there's this, that and the other. And he's got a track that isn't finished, which he'd like to include in the album. Have you got time? Would you like to, to produce it? Obviously, I said yes. And um, I got sent two-inch master copies of Motor of Love. And I, I listened to it and thought there's a middle eight or there's a section missing. And um, basically uh, cut the tape, slotted a bunch of landing strip in with a with a drum box time base. I think it was like 12 or 16 bars that I sort of inserted. And um, Paul came and said, look, I just got a feeling we've got a, a bit of music missing here. And um, I've, I've laid this out. And, you know, do you want, do you want to play into this? sort of bit and, and come up with a middle eight. And, and he said, yeah, we hooked him up with a keyboard. We ran the tape and he sort of just played and he kind of launched from where the song went into just drum box, played and came back and landed back in the, effectively the right place in, back into the song. And he did it in one take and it was just uh, extraordinary to watch him work in that way. And he just sort of said, yeah, well, that's kind of what I do. And he and he'd, <laughs> he created this whole little journey of a middle eight. And obviously we, we then went to stitch it in properly and, and record everything, you know, to make it seamless. So you actually watched McCartney create there and then in front Absolutely. of Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Completely had, I, I think he had no no notion that he was going to be doing that and just went, yeah, sure. And um, no, I mean, he's an unbelievable talent, you know, incredibly, incredibly talented. Um, so going back, so when that first time you met him, did you get to speak to George Martin at all? Uh, very, very briefly, just very, you know, cordial, hello, how are you and stuff. Yeah. No, no, no in-depth conversation. No. Right, okay. And what were you working on at the time? That's a good question. I, I need to work out, that would um, tie down the time of when it was. Yes, I don't know is the short answer. I could, okay. I could, I could go back to the uh, archives and come up with something. I can't remember. And it wasn't Ebony and Ivory you were listening to back to back on the plague back, was it? Uh, no, it, it wasn't. It was. Oh my word! It, uh, it's a track with um, Ringo and Jim Keltner on two two sets of drums. Oh, take it away. Yeah, it was take it away. Take yeah. it away. Okay, so yeah. it's eighty two. Okay, so there you have it. Yeah, okay, brilliant. Well, that, that is remarkable because that is quite a long time before I ended up working with him. Yeah, it could have been earlier because I'm, I'm session started about late 1980 into 81, so it could be around that time as well. It could be even earlier. My word. Yeah, long time ago. Take it away, take it away. Okay, so going back to Motor of Love, because I, I do love that song. I think that's yeah. an absolutely brilliant song. I do. Um, yeah. When you were given the demo... Yeah. In your mind, what was your approach to how you're going to record the song? Do you have an image in your head of what kind of song you wanted it to be? The, the, the demo version, which we built from, I just thought it, it, it was one of those tracks which seemed like it could be quite dreamy and quite sort of luscious with lots of um, harmony vocals and, yeah, just a quite, quite a luscious sort of dreamy, no rush to get the song delivered. It's quite long, you know, it floats along. So yeah, it was just a, it was just to try and get a, an atmosphere like that, really. My friends keep asking me why there is a smile on my face. 
I take it the length was deliberate because it's got this long outro that kind of just fades off into the distance, and that was. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was quite deliberate. It felt like it could be that long. I mean, at that time, people were making tracks which had, you know, a journey aspect to them, or you know, they weren't just like a a two and a half minute, three minute pop song. So I mean, it's quite reasonable to 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 sort of try and construct something which was long. Yeah, and obviously Paul was very happy with that, and you know worked at making it work as it were you know okay going back to 1982 81 um if it had been ebony and ivory you'd have um listened to it. what would you have said on the playback afterwards um ebony and ivory because uh, i like it i like ebony and ivory i, I do I, I mean a lot of people obviously don't like it or find yeah. it right well i think i think the thing with paul is you can never ever underestimate how he can take a song and work on a song that you might think was a bit corny or something like that, but he does it with such a plomb. I mean, the same argument rages with Obla Dee Bla Yeah, yeah. And that's whether you like it or not. It's an extremely clever piece of work, and it's extremely well put together. And you will catch yeah, yourself I, I, singing it, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And, yeah, and also things like Maxwell's Silver Hammer. There's people that go, oh, my goodness. But, but actually, it's brilliantly put together. My nine-year-old is obsessed with that song. I think it's a mixture of the melody and the murder. When she turns her back on the boy, he creeps up from behind. Okay, so um, in the studio with McCartney, yeah. what was the dynamic? Was it very much producer and artist, or was it like two musicians working together? I think it's it's just a relationship which comes together relatively quickly and you kind of sound each other out and kind of try and work out a way of making something great. I mean, it's a collaborative experience, you know. Um, so he, it wasn't, I mean, you know, he's made so many records, you know, he knows the process of making a record. So I think for him, it was quite nice to have someone there saying, well, we could try this or good take, bad take. We could, you know, perhaps you could re-sing that or, you know, whatever it is. It's a conversation you have. It's not, it, there's nothing sort of dictatorial about it. So, you know, he was very, very uh, amenable and very prepared to, you know, follow up ideas and suggestions and some were good and some weren't, you know. So what was the process then when, say, a vocal take wasn't up to snuff or you, you thought he could do a part better, like a bass part or something? You just, you, you know, you, you're talking to him through the glass and you say, let's try that again, you know, and he might say, you know what was wrong with that, or or he'd say, yeah, yeah, I know, I know it wasn't good, or you know, it was. It was telling him a vocal wasn't great or wasn't quite right is never a mystery to him. I mean, he's a phenomenal singer, so you know, you kind of know when you're singing well and whether you're hitting pitch and whether the phrasing's right. So I mean, he's 
you know, he completely knows what he's doing. But it's there again, it's nice to have someone sitting there going, yeah, good, right, let's do this bit now and maybe put the harmony on there or whatever it is. So it's a, it's a collaborative piece of work. So there's never any awkward moments of, you know, do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? I would, I would say that Paul likes people um, appreciating his work and validating what he's doing. And I, you know, I've heard that, I've heard this before. I, I had no problem with him at all. You know, I mean, there's a way of speaking to someone where you're not sort of being insulting or you're missing the point or you're sort of coming from the wrong place. I mean, he knows when his work's good or not. So it was a case of just uh, perhaps we could try that one again. And, and he, you know, go, yeah, sure. It wasn't a case of me saying, you know what? This is no good. Go away and rewrite this. Because I think that's extremely arrogant when you talk to someone who has had, you know, hundreds of number ones and essentially knows what they're doing. So that's not a good approach. You know, you have to approach, you have to approach people from how they work, really. Are there any McCartney songs of the periods there in the 80s that you really don't like you you dislike a lot um probably yeah i can't and if if he'd have presented one of those is i got this this killer track would you have like been okay i'm gonna have to try and make this as good as it can be would have been like no i don't think it's actually uh it's good enough paul i probably i probably would have uh jumped at the opportunity to work with him so that would have biased (laughs) i mean you know you know if he suggested we worked on something which i thought was god awful from the word go it might have been a bit tricky, but I, there again, I would have looked at a way of trying to make it do something any good. You know, so, it had been a song after Motor of Love. Say so you've had Motor of Love, good song, then a good yeah. version, and then he comes up with the second song and says, "What about this one?" And it's you know, "Mary Had a Little Lamb" Part Two. Okay, Paul, let's work on it. What's what's <laughs> going on with this? <laughs> let's hear the chords. What's going on? Play it on the piano. You know, who knows? You know, we worked on um, Figure of Eight after that, and you know, he'd recorded that and. I think there was a conversation where I'd said, I think, you know, I think it could be a single. It could be made more, you know, like a sort of breezy single. And he sort of said, yeah, okay, well, if you think so, let's give it a go. So we set about recording that. Did he come to you with that song saying, what about this? Or did you actually hear it and think, hey, Paul, how about... I think what happened was that I was, he was probably playing me a bunch of tracks. And I, and I said, hey, that's, you know, that's great. And then maybe, you know, a couple of days later, I said, yeah, I was thinking about that track, Figure Eight. I think that, you know, with a bit of tweaking and a bit of a bit of work, that could be a single. And he said, oh, OK, 
And uh, then he said, do you want to work on it? So we, we worked on it. So it was a pretty easy conversation, really. But there again, it wasn't like I was saying, you know that version of figure of eight, you know, you fucked that up. <laughs> you need to do that better. It wasn't. It wasn't the conversation. That like was the that. last time I spoke to Paul McCartney. Yeah, and <laughs> and then I woke up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, Sorry. all my conversations with Paul were were basically pretty straightforward and you know good natured. And that single version was it um, like a remix with overdubs, or was it re-recorded from scratch? I think it was a re-record completely. I think, so. to be honest, I can't remember. But if it was, if it was from the ground up, I mean, there may. Then we may have kept a couple of things. I, I can't can't remember, but essentially we rebuilt it. Yeah, and it's very rare to get a single version that's a minute and a half longer than the album version. So I know that's a strange mistake, isn't it? I mean, was that the the thought there between you to like extend it and make more of the song, or was it just something that happened naturally once you started recording it? It just happened. It just became that form, and um, I think we liked it. Again, it's a really good song. I think you, you've got two really good songs to work on. Luckily, I did, yeah. Yeah, if you'd have had how many people, what would you have done with that song? Uh, you remember that one? I do, yeah. I would have just worked, you know, I would have just worked on it and tried to make it as good as possible. It's very hard to know, you know. If you can tell me, I'll gladly listen. Um, Bob Clearmountain mixed the single. Yes. Did that make a lot of difference either positively or negatively to the track and, and generally speaking when someone comes in and mixes something that you've as a producer you've obviously done your mix yeah what is that relationship do you get to have any kind of relationship with a person remixing is it really yeah safe? It, var- it varies i mean for reasons and there are millions of reasons why it's agreed that someone will do a remix and it's not remix in the modern sense of like you know reinventing it it's a remix where there's a, there's a particular sort of vision on it and someone else coming to mix it might achieve that better. And in the case of Bob, I mean, he's, he's so brilliant at, at mixing and balancing. He, he, he must have heard that and gone, yeah, I can, I, can, you know, I can make this mix better. And he did, you know. So I'm very relaxed about that. I mean, I've been in situations where someone's mixed something for me and, you know, I've been discussing the fact that the hi-hat isn't right. And they've said, no, no, the hi-hat's fine. And I'm saying, well, I'm the guy who's going to be signing off on this. And it's not fine. You know, so sometimes there are strange conversations. But in the case of Bob mixing that, it's no-brainer. Can you think of an example where mix kind of ruined the song? Like a specific example. Either then you corrected it or actually went out like that. Um, I'm trying to think if there's... I think there's... I mean, I don't want to mention the, the, the tracks because I don't want to put a bias on them, but there's a couple of tracks that I've worked on of, of which they've been successful tracks that I've thought the mix wasn't as great as I could have got it. Yeah. Successful as in what, hit singles? Yeah. From yeah. the early 80s? Yeah. Uh, Adam and the Ants? Well, um, I'll, I'll just say this, Mark. <laughs> one's an Adam and the Ants track down? and one's a Tears for Fears track. So one's an Adam and the Ants track? And one's a Tears for Fears track, both of which I think they're great and I love them. Yep. I worked hard on them and I got them, you know, to where we got them. But um, in retrospect, I think they could they could sound better. Can I just have one guess on each and then we'll move on? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Adam and that singer, I'm going to say, I don't know, because they all sound so good. But they, you know, I'll say Ant Rap. Um, no, I'm okay with that. Okay. No. Um, Tears for Fears, again, what's, what's, what's the problem? What's the problem? Um, change. No, I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, thank you for your guessings. Yeah. Okay. We'll leave it at that then. I would have told you you were right, 
you know, if you've been... Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, okay. It doesn't leave that many to work out, actually. It can't be Prince Charming or Stand and Deliver, can it? It can't be a Mad World and Pelt Shelter. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I, lo- I, I love it. You agree with me, don't you, right? So you're, you're, you're absolutely spot on. Yeah. Okay, so Kings of the Wild Frontier. Uh, that, okay, okay, Mark, seeing as you're pressing this, <laughs> I'll give you that. I think um, the Kings of the Wild Frontier, single mix. Okay, uh, could, be, could be better. What was, what was the issue with it? Um, oh, it's, it, it's it's sort of technical. I just think it could be a little bit more expansive. It, it feels, it sounds a little bit, um, it sounds a little bit sort of um, over brash in a couple of places. Okay. So it's great, don't get me wrong. No, it is great. I'm, it's... I'm not damning it. I love it. You know, I'm proud of it. I just, on a personal level, maybe one day I'll remix it. Okay. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. I've got my own Chris Hughes playlist I was listening to um, in chronological order from Dalek I Love You through to Howard Jones. McCartney at the end and it's just it's one great track after the other so the, you might as well tell me the Tears of Fears one now because you, you, you told me the Adam and the Adams one okay the Tears of Fears track that I would I, I would like to remix um, is Shout oh. now don't get me wrong that is I love it you know mm. and we worked hard on it and we got it to a place and it, it you know it's great but I personally um, sometimes when I hear that I think oh yeah it's just a little brash in a couple of places and that could be a bit more expansive but you know these are these are minor details and they're, they're details I'm sort of personally having an issue with I don't you know I don't think they're a problem in yeah. real terms absolutely not okay so back to the figure of eight single version for the layman yeah. like most people don't quite understand the specifics of mixing so when you say that Bob Clear Mountain did a mix and improved the song can you give an example of one part of the song or one instrument that he mixed where you can say that was improved by his mix so someone can listen to it and say okay so i can imagine i'm trying to i'm trying to think i think i think what he got right was the the um the general levels of uh compression and reverb so without being over technical Mm -hmm. i just think he got the kind of the finesse the bit where it you know you kind of polish it in a way where it, where it sort of either sort of explodes at you or doesn't, and he got it to sort of explode well. You know, it just it's it's. I, I just like what he does. In in general, I like what he does. You know, I mean, he's just a very very good balance and and mix engineer. You know, he's a hell of a lot of stuff, hasn't he? Oh yeah, and he's you know he's deserved of all the credit he gets because he's that good. He did Seeds of Love as well, didn't he? Mixed up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. one of the things you know, Bob's uh, he's not. Um, daunted by something that might be complex you know okay back to paul in the studio um i assume linda was around she uh, was yes linda was great she was around yeah and how long were you in the studio with paul for or how long were you in contact with him and what was the um i think i I think from the the day we started to the day i went up to abbey road to because i went to abbey road to um at the actual cut at the vinyl cut and sort of just hovered around and attended that cut so i think from the, the day we started to the day it was cut was like three months something like that and were you involved in the sequencing the running order of flowers in the dirt he had the he had the a, a, a running order sorted and i think um and he, he said what do you think and i i think i thought that they could have i think we i think we had a chat about it and, and ended up changing the end of side one but i can't remember exactly put it there
but yeah, I remember him playing. He says, you know, what do you think? And I said, it's good, but I think, we, you know, that track could go at the end and it would be like quite a nice end to side one. But other than that, he, he kind of knew what he wanted. And was it always those 12 songs or were there other songs in contention for the album? Uh, there, may have, there may have been, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I'm not sure. By the time I got involved with him, it, those were the ones that were inked in. So I always felt there's a great lost album there with the Elvis Costello stuff. That yeah, I mean, the, the thing been, is that, that, you know, that could have been quite a healthy kind of collaboration. But I don't know. I don't know whether it was just a, a kind of thing where they did a bunch of writing together and and they both felt that was enough. Or but I don't quite know whether, you know, you can never tell how, you know, how a, a relationship might work. You know, they might have just felt that was enough. Yeah, I think if in, in 1988 they got in the studio with the producer, like someone like yourself as a good referee. Yeah. And just knocked it out themselves because they could have recorded everything between them. They're both good musicians. Of course. Of course. Here lies a picture of a girl Her arms are tied around that lucky guy And it's so like candy And in her eyes a certain love I thought I'd seen the last of love But it's hard to know. It's hard to know individually what they were after. You know, I yeah. mean, the idea of pursuing your own career and knowing what you're doing and doing what you do well, and then being in a collaborative situation which may not be um, as rewarding for you as you think it, thought it might have been. It's quite possible they 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 thought, yeah, this has been a nice you know period of time, but you know, I want to get on with my own stuff now. I think also McCartney might have felt that he was in a no-win situation. It either didn't work, or if it did work. And it was with a bunch of Elvis Costello co-writes. It'd be like, oh, it's, it's only work. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one. At any, it's tricky, isn't it? Knowing, um, you know, knowing, I mean, you, you, it's a fair point what you're making, you know. It would be pretty horrible to get to a certain point and find out that you're only any good if you're collaborating. Yeah, exactly. Plus, George Harrison just had a big hit album. So yeah. that would have been in his mind as well that he needs to have something that's commercially successful. And yeah. Costello will bring you credibility, but not necessarily going to bring you huge sales. But I think, I think you know, in the case of say the the Beatles and, and Paul you know all the way you've got this kind of strange thing when as I say you know they're, they're releasing something like Maxwell's Silver Hammer but around the corner you've got Hendrix and The Who and, and Led Zeppelin they were all on, on the scene and <laughs> Maxwell's Silver Hammer must have seemed like old school vaudeville compared to <laughs> you know <laughs> what the new wave of, of bands you know Cream and you know yeah, yeah. Pink Floyd it must have been strange you know did he share any good um, Beatles anecdotes when he was in the studio with you that you'd not heard before? I, I didn't talk to him much about, you know, tell, tell us about the Beatles because it doesn't feel like a good way of starting a conversation, <laughs> but he was yeah. quite happy to talk about things within the Beatles and stuff and how they did things periodically. He'd talk, but um, it, it wasn't like I'd sit down and interview him, as it were, about Beatles-ness, you know, so not really. I mean, there were things that... He talked about in passing, but they're not really, it's not really interview material, really. Yeah, yeah. What would you say um, surprised you most about working with him you didn't expect beforehand? I think things were reaffirmed. I mean, his love of music is ever present. I mean, whether it's just 
dancing around the room playing a trumpet because you know, he was <laughs> kind of excited about something, which he did do, or just, you know, sitting at the piano when there was downtime because a machine had broken and just sit there playing the piano. And it was amazing, you know. So music's just, as I say, ever-present. And that's wonderful to, to witness. So at the end of the process, and you're getting on really well. Was there any talk of you doing like another project together? No, no. I think he went off and wanted to do something else with some other people. And I think he's consistently done that. I think the thing is the flavour of an album, sometime the, um, the, the the nature of an album is down to a producer kind of being quite firm about the vision of things. And other times it's not. It's about what songs the artist has written and what you can work with. So, so the, the collaborative aspect does depend on what chops the producer's bringing and what songs the artist's bringing and how inspirational that feels. You know, if you're working on a, 10 songs and you love them all, it's a wonderful, wonderful situation to be in, you know. Yeah. Okay, so um, I asked this question before about Roland and Kurt. What would, you, yeah. what would be your three words that would describe Paul McCartney when you're working with him in the 80s? Um, talented, intelligent, funny. Okay. Is there one uh, solo McCartney song you wish you'd got your hands on to produce? Like, there's one song that's like, I wish I could produce that song. Hey Jude. <laughs> that was taken care of. Okay, quite. so what, what would you have done with Hey Jude differently? I would have just been there listening to it. <laughs> it would have been amazing. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm, I'm not saying, oh, no, I, I wish I could have done that because I would have made it much better. I would have just loved to have been involved in that session or those sessions. Oh, absolutely. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? What about in the 80s? Anything from the 80s? Um, yeah. Or, or even... or, you, know, the, you know the song Waterfalls? Absolutely, yeah. Gorgeous. Uh, I would love to have um, been in there just noodling about with that song with him. Not that it needs, once again, it's a brilliant song, you know. Don't go chasing polar bears In the great unknown Some big friendly polar bear Might want to take you So continuing the Flowers in the Dirt theme, we have producer Stephen Lipson, who's recently produced the Oscar-winning Bond theme, No Time to Die, for Billie Eilish. And here he co-produced four tracks with Trevor Horn, Four Flowers in the Dirt. And here he is on his time with Fab Macca Wacky Thumbs Aloft. 1989. Flowers in the Dirt by Paul McCartney comes out. You worked on four tracks with Trevor Horn Could on the album? Yeah. Um, so it's Rough Ride, which I believe you recorded in one or two days. I think most yep. of them you recorded in one or two days. Yeah, that was the, the plan. Macca says it was his plan, but it was definitely our plan. 
We'd just spent too long making records and we thought we'd just get in and out. I remember the conversation clearly. I remember where we were and how it came about. And that was our plan, two days. We go down, two days, do a song, get out, go back down, two days, do a song. That was the sort of plan. And we sort of adhered to it. He redid one of them. That was Figure of Eight. Yeah, that's right, with Chris Hughes. I had no idea why it was re-recorded. I actually preferred the version you did to the single version, I have to admit. Oh, you know what? I couldn't really hear much difference. I mean, kind of, but it didn't make it. Yeah, it just sounds like there's no reason to make a five-minute version of that song. I think three and a half minutes is about the right length for it. Good song. It's all right. Yeah, I think that there we did four. How many people, which is some weird sort of reggae thing, which I never understood. Uh Ue Sole, whole story attached to that. Yes, didn't you not originate that? Yeah. You know yeah. what? It's fine. And I've got no I'm f- like Having worked with the man, I have nothing but admiration for him. I couldn't think, I'll tell you what, being in a band with him, what a great guy to have in a band. Constantly having ideas, can play everything really well, sings well, you know, full on. He's amazing. And on Rough Ride, you played the bass in front of him. How did yeah, that which is a bit weird. <laughs> can imagine. Yeah. Not, it, well, uh, it was kind of good. Bass and rhythm. I had the drum box and the bass, and he was playing guitar. And it, we, we just went round it all day. And I kept having these waves of emotion about playing the bass with Paul McCartney in the room. Did you ever sense him checking you out as a bass player, I think, you know, and get like a nod of approval? Like, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty good. No, no, it was a keyboard bass. Oh, it was a keyboard bass. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was playing the keyboard. No, no, I can't play the keyboard. So the whole thing was a bit hit and miss. So in terms of producing Paul, if he thinks a vocal you think isn't up to scratch or there's a bum note on the bass, how would you word it? How would you, was he approachable to that kind of constructive, not even criticism, but like we could, we can do that again. Would it be amenable to that? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I, well, there was a moment I had with him, which, which I, I'm not sure if I regret it or not. I don't know. But we were going around Rough Ride, and there was a bridge section. We call it a middle eight here. The Americans call it a bridge. Yeah. And um, after going around it uh, two million times, I just hit stop. And Trevor and Paul looked at me. And, of course, he had all his crew in there, you know, who acolytes. And um, they looked at me, and I said, the thing is, we keep going around this again and again, and this bit's not very good. And, you know, the room, it just went very cold and silent. <laughs> and and uh, I could feel all his guys looking at me like, have you gone mental? You know, it was what, a really weird moment. Yeah. And uh, Maka sort of was the same. He couldn't believe, it looked as if he couldn't believe it. And he, you know what, my memory might be bad. But he said, oh, yeah, so what are you going to do about it? And I said something along the lines of, that's your department. <laughs> My department is to tell you. And he, he went, okay. And he went upstairs and rewrote the section and came down. And it was, I don't know if it was better, it was different. 
whatever. Actually, I think it might have been better. I'm not asking for an easy passage. So I hope you understand. I'm not after any special treatment. But I wouldn't mind a hand on rough ride. But it was a real thing. Tell you, I didn't think before I said it. I, and so, so when I said it, I didn't say it with much um, subtlety, you know. Yeah, I can actually wouldn't have been used to that. Hasn't been spoken to that like in that way since like 1964 or something like that. George Martin telling him, you know. I'd imagine he was much politer. Yeah. To me, How Many People is the only song I don't like, to be honest. I'm not that keen on it. It, uh, McCartney seems to do one of these songs every album where it's a bit like kind of a bit cheesy. When you get a song that you're not that keen on, do you just work your way through it? Do you find it's a challenge? Like, okay, I'm going to work extra hard on this song because it's not very it good. It depends. It depends. Are there other songs to pick from? You know, if there are, then maybe in a very polite way you can say this one might be more appropriate or whatever. And if there aren't and you have to finish the album off and it needs to go on, you do your best. listen to the album as a whole to see how your tracks merged in with the rest to see if it actually all flowed together as an album it was like i've done we've done our four tracks that's our bit no <laughs> I, got, I never heard the album never heard the album no there's like nine different credited producers so it, on one album yeah it's, it's kind of it does actually hang together quite well which is surprising considering there's like nine producers on it well it's all paul mccartney he's kind of a big personality yeah, I guess it's going to be what Paul wants in the end. Sure. Then again, Trevor Horn's a big personality as well. Yeah, it? but the idea was it was Paul McCartney, you know, and we were only spending two days. Hey, I'm Will. And I'm Kat. If you love 1980s pop culture, you'll love 1980s now. Each week we discuss our favorite 1980s media. Like movies, TV shows, music. Yeah, we chat with our favorite 1980s celebrities. Like Affirmations with Dee Wallace. And other times, uh, Alex Winter tells us what Bill and Ted's phone booth smells like. But it's always fun. You don't have to miss the 1980s. You can have your 1980s now. Hugh Padgham. So we've had two positive experiences of working with McCartney. So for the sake of balance, uh, we now have Hugh Padgham. As every fan knows, the album Before Flowers in the Dirt was pressed to play, produced by Hugh. An album I actually love. I genuinely love Pressed to Play. Hugh Padgham was hugely successful coming into this, and he was a good choice. If you want to do something more contemporary after Guimard Guys to Broad Street, he was the perfect choice. And it seemed like a marriage made in contemporary pop heaven, but... It's not true. Anyway, do check out Press to Play. He was way too harsh on it, and I'm, I swear that one day I'll get him to do an audio commentary on it. <laughs> Might take a few years, but I'll keep on trying. Anyway, here's you. 
The first thing with McCartney that came out was a Spies Like Us single, which I do really like. And that was produced by Flora Moan. You got a credit on that, so I take it you're involved with that. It was during the Press to Play sessions, or was that a bit? Yeah, it, yeah, it was. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I would have recorded that most of that stuff. I can't. I, I got very sort of funny memories of that McCartney record, to be honest. Um, we'll move on to that. Do you have any particular memories okay. of Spies Like Us? Because Phil Ramone's credited on it as well. Was it, did he finish it off? Or was there a particular session that he did? I mean, how, how did that work? Well, I can remember him so well, because I think it was the first time I met him. I mean, you know, it became quite sort of, um, you know, I used to meet him quite often in, you know, in various recording capacities after that. But I can't, I'm just trying to look here, actually. It wasn't on the album, was it? No, no, it's released in 85. The album was released in 86. It's released, um, obviously, it, the time it, of it, the movie. It was the movie, wasn't it? Yeah. So saying it's recorded in September 85 and released in November. Ooh, so when did we do... So I guess Press to Play would have been around that time you just started around that time. Yeah, because I can remember him coming in the studio and I can remember Tony Visconti coming down and doing an orchestral arrangement. Yeah, pass on, on that. When was the last time you heard Spies Like Us, the song? Decades ago, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I think decades ago. So I have a kind of soft spot for 80s McCartney because that was my way into the Beatles was through McCartney. So I kind of have a that kind of 82 to 80, 86, 87 period. I kind of a huge amount of fondness for. 1986. So we, we might disagree on, on 1986 um, when we get to the Press to Play album because I know it wasn't a particularly happy experience for you. And I know you said in interviews that when you got the original songs, the demos, you weren't massively impressed with the songs that you'd been sent. No, I, 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 I mean, if, if, if I'm being really, really honest, I got given a cassette of the songs that he had written, mostly with Eric Stewart, I think, and it was just acoustic guitars and singing. And I just remember thinking, oh, it's a bit disappointing. I remember being given the cassette Drop, it was dropped round to the studio when I, I think I was working with Phil Collins. And I went home that night after we finished clutching this cassette, very excited, because I don't know if, I, if you know the story how I got to work with McCartney. No. Well, back in the year before was the first year that emails came out um, that you could send an email. And in those days, it was very, very new technology. And you had to have a small little portable computer because portable computers didn't exist then, made by this company called Radio Shack. And you had a modem that fitted into it that looked like a cup because in those days, the phones had... Um, do you remember the old-fashioned phone, you know, with a yep. speaker and a microphone, two two round things connected yep. by the thing. <laughs> Put them in yes. up, and then you had to dial up a, a a number, especially to get to it and to get onto the network. But everybody in the music business thought this was the best thing since sliced bread because you could send messages to somebody abroad or if they're on tour, and you didn't have to know where they were. You could just send them a message, and it was amazing. And 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 quite a few of us were into it. Anyway, I was having a lesson on how to. Uh, work this new setup at this 
bloke's house. On the radio, in the background, came Ebony and Ivory, which was Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And I, I said, oh my God, I just cannot stand this shit, basically, that <laughs> sort of poppy rubbish that Paul McCartney's doing now, because I think the previous single was the Frog Song or something. That came afterwards. Don't be, hey, wait, 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 wait. We're, we're going to really disagree here. Don't be knocking the frog song, okay? Come on. All right, okay. Well, That's the frog song was really great, but he had done some songs <laughs> that, that weren't, you know, my yeah. cup of tea, put it like that. Yeah. Being a fan of the Beatles and especially Paul's early solo albums. I mean, you know, I can't say I was a huge fan of Muller Kintyre either. But so anyway, what I didn't know was that the chap who was uh, um, teaching me how to use the email, his wife uh, worked as Paul McCartney's manager's secretary. And he told her, she told Paul's manager. And I then a few, a week or so later, get a phone call from Paul's manager saying, oh, well, Paul's sort of heard what you said and he'd really like to meet you. So, so what, he heard that you said that Ebony and Ivory was shit and he wanted to well, meet I you. I just said that it was about time that Paul sort of got a bit more sort of, I don't know, you know, serious or rocky. And so I I got called in to have a meeting with the manager at his office, in which was in Manchester Square then, I think. And we had... A talk, and of course, you know, age whatever I was, 28, 29, or something, it's pretty uh, big honor to be asked by Paul McCartney, you know, do you want to do, can, would you like to do an album with me? So I was really, really excited. And, um, and then it was like, well, let's talk about the band. And he, and the first thing he said, well, who's going to play the bass? And I went, sorry, what do you mean, who's going to play the bass? You're going to play the bass, surely. Oh well, if you want me to have a have a band and stuff, then you know maybe we should get another bass player. But it was all um, going back to the songs when I, you know, so it was exciting. And then when I got the songs, suddenly I wasn't very excited. But I thought that it was completely me because sometimes when you're producing records, you might be given a demo or something that's very basic, and you kind of make it into something in the studio. Mm. You work hard with it. You work to, you know, bring out the best of it in a way. And 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 demos can be very basic. And so I just thought it was me. How could I be thinking that Paul McCartney, God, and also <laughs> I was a huge fan of 10CC. Yes, I thought yes. Eric Stewart was amazing because not only did he write some amazing songs in in 10cc or co-write but he used to engineer as well and play guitar and produce i mean he was like a hero of mine so i just thought this must be my problem not not the fact that the songs aren't any good i was just doubting myself so in terms of your relationship with paul then do you think because he already knew the comments you'd made i mean it seems like a a small thing but He'd heard you say things about Ebony and Ivory. There was, it was almost doomed to fail because he'd always had that kind of. He's not somebody who's used to people saying that shit. 
that he had that in the back of his mind working with you that you'd already said something was the number one single of his was shit. I, I, I somehow doubt that my email tutor's wife used <laughs> words quite as sort of heavy as that. But I mean, but it interests Paul enough to ask me to work with him. And at that point I had, you know, pretty good reputation in terms of integrity. I used to, you know, well, is that, I don't know if that's the right word, but the police and, and XTC and, you know, whatever else I'd done. And I, and, and, and I was, I was hoping that we were going to make a real sort of good muso record. And I got some pretty good players together, you know, including Phil Collins on one track, but we had, mm-hmm. Jerry Marotta, who used to play the drums with Peter Gabriel. We had Carlos Alomar um, play guitar. We had, um, I had Eddie Rayner, who played keyboards for Split Ends, who, are, yeah. you know, was a genius as far as I was concerned. You, you know, we had, we had a, a, an, and a Paul playing bass in the end. But it was all just so sort of laboured, the whole thing. It really was. And uh, I, I think I'm perfectly justified to say that I don't think the songs were that were that great, you know. So was it complicated by the fact that Eric Stewart believed that he was going to... He wrote these songs with Paul, he thought he was going to produce the album with Paul, and then all of a sudden another producer's brought in. So did that lead to some... Well, you see that... I don't really want to talk about it that much, but I've, I've read some unbelievable vitriol that Eric has written or talked about to me. And I was never, ever told that Eric Stewart was co-producing, especially in the way that I make records, which is very much a sort of, I'm, I'm highly unautocratic. You know, there's, there's producers, I think we might have mentioned before, who's a great friend of mine, Trevor Horn. You know the way he 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 produces is 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 you know he he's the boss. I I produce with the artists or the artists or the writers, but no one ever ever said to me that Eric was involved and he uh, in the production side and he used to turn up and sit at the back of the room. So I don't know where all this happened, and I'm not I'm I'm not going to comment on it. To be honest, he can think what he thinks and. And I'll think what I think, and they're probably different. So that, yeah, that's sure. it. But yeah. I still say that I don't think the songs were very good. And that's that's the way it is. So in terms of the actual recording, you said it was a bit laboured. So was there a moment when the relationship with Paul started to go downhill a bit? Or was it just, it was perfectly um, affable, but it just, just there was something that just wasn't quite right about the sessions? Yeah, it was affable, but laboured, you know. It just took a long time. I mean, if Paul was going to play the bass, he would want to overdub it again later and it would take sort of ages and he would... It was just difficult. I mean, it was... We were all sort of affable. I mean, it was... To start with, it was fantastic working with Paul because he'd come in and recount Beatles anecdotes and stuff, which was you know, really good fun to listen to that sort of thing. And everybody working on the sessions were were lovely. And Linda would come down sometimes and she was lovely. And, um, uh, uh, it, it, but it just, it, I, I just felt that I was 
to use this terrible word, trying to polish a turd. It's just really, really difficult. And, and sometimes you just tear your hair out. I mean, one episode I remember on one of the songs, I suggested that perhaps we, I can't remember even exactly what it was, perhaps the, the middle eight was too long or, or whatever. And Paul's reply to me was, well, how many hit songs have you written, Hugh? So I yeah. felt, yeah. you know, cr- crawling up into a, into a ball and, and falling down the nearest hole I could find. What was your response? I, don't, I think I was so hurt by that response. I can't, I can't remember saying anything, to be honest. I certainly didn't. I didn't argue. <laughs> yeah, I mentioned in the previous interview about what you should have said. That you've just produced, no jacket required. Well, yeah, so that's, what I, that's that's what I should have said. But I'm 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 probably naturally not very confrontational. Yeah, yeah. So I guess after and that, you, Paul could get quite annoyed. You know, he 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 could get quite annoyed. I don't think I'm the only person to have found it difficult to work with him. I mean, what kind of things would he get annoyed at in the studio? Oh, he'd get annoyed at himself sometimes for not coming up with you know the baseline or 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 something but i mean there was a game that was really popular in the 80s it was like a general knowledge card game trivial pursuits trivial pursuits and there was a trivial pursuits uh, a music version right mm. and so it was paul's birthday and so i thought i'd give him the trivial pursuits musical edition for, for a birthday present and um the next day or the monday or whatever it was he came in and he was really cross and i remember thinking that that he was he was quite cross at me and then somebody said oh there was one of the questions in it was how was paul when his mother died or something and um i didn't know that was in there do you know how I mean? old was it oh, yeah i can imagine that would <laughs> Isn't that weird to, to live in existence where there can be a question in Trill Pursuit about when your mum died? Yeah. At that level of fame. It can't be, can't be, I think it was something to, like, like that. I'm not sure if it was, if that was exactly the question, but it might have been something like that. But again, so did he, you know, did he, did he I, mention I, that directly I to felt, you or just did somebody say it? I think, that, I think he was grumpy at me and he didn't actually say it to me, but somebody did say that's what. That's why he was not very happy. But little things like that. What is your favourite track on the album? Are there any tracks you actually like? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Come on, this. Uh, I actually prefer it to "Flowers in the Dirt," which is the one that followed it. Was sold better and was critically well reviewed. But I actually think there's a real. It's kind of the last time when he really, well, for a while at least, where he really took chances and did something kind of offbeat and a bit weird. A song like Talk More Talk is so odd. Yeah. Which is what I love about it. And it's, again, it's very, it's probably his most 80s track. I really love that song. <laughs> I love that, that recording. Handy, man, and what they want is quick service. Because I am a house owner. I am a house owner. It may be worth something someday. I hear water going through the pipe. I don't actually like sitting down music 
don't know if what you think about it. Yeah. No, it's interesting. It's interesting. I it mean, like, it, what is anything that that weird on Flowers in the Dirt? I mean, all the rough edges were kind of honed and it was kind of more polished and, and neat and proper and it kind of lost that kind of character that I think Flowers, that uh, Press to Play has. Yeah. Who did, convinced who, are you? Who did um, Flowers in the Dirt with him? Uh, there's a bunch of people. Trevor Horn did a couple of tracks with Stephen Lipson and Chris yeah. Hughes and Neil Dorfman and obviously McCartney himself. There's a bunch of different producers. Yeah. It's very, it's a good album, but I just, I just prefer Press the Play because I think it has more character to it, more personality. I think I quite like Footprints. Friends have flown away. He's left out in the cold. He won't sit by my fire. He says he likes it in the snow. And I quite like Only Love Remains. I think that's a beautiful ballad. It's one of his best ballads since the Beatles, I'd say, Only Love Remains. You think? Yeah, yeah I do. It's a beautiful I song. Do, I do like that song. When all our friends have gone And we're alone about press the first single no <laughs> no I'm going to edit out your answer just leave it to that sound because I think that, that is the answer so I think press is a great pop song I think it's a really really great pop song it's, it's, good guitar solo from Carlos Alamo yeah but it's weak I think really actually and going back to um, covers I didn't like that cover when I first saw it at all Really? I probably slightly like it more now, but I... I... What was it you didn't like about it? It's that classic black and white portrait. Yeah, I mean, it's a pastiche, isn't it? Wasn't it... I can't even remember who who did the cover now, but it was... Was it Gerald Harrell? Is it somebody very famous? Somebody. 30s, 40s... Yeah, exactly. Photographer, yeah. Yeah. It's not true! Correction Corner. The photographer's name is George, not Gerard. Harrell. Or Haran. Whatever it is, it's definitely not Gerard. Thank you. It's not true. So, yeah, you know, it's not favourite album I've made, put it like that. I think you should give it another listen. I think it's well worth well worth a revisit. Okay. Right. okay. So, so, so you say you prefer if you had choice between tonight and press to play, you'd prefer tonight. Probably, yes. Probably. Yes. Okay. Yes. Actually, however absurd. <laughs>
Gary Langan. A quick one now. Uh, producer, engineer, and founder member of Art of Noise, Gary Langan, who was asked to do his Art of Noise thing on a 12 inch mix of the ball songs My Carnival, Wings track from the 70s, for the Spies Like Us single. Here is his recollection of working with Paul. Spoiler alert, he probably would consider himself very much in the Hugh camp. Also, um, Paul McCartney, My Carnival. Party uh, that was 85 because that was on the um, Spies Like Us 12 inch, which I, I had and, and played to death. I love that 12 inch. Really, really not my favorite pieces of work. I love Spies Like Us and do I love my really good heaven. Yes, I do. I'm the person. <laughs> you saying you don't like my carnival or you don't like Spies Like Us? Well, I, I like either of them to be honest, I, and that but that goes against I don't work with something I don't you're like. It's McCartney, so you're not going to say no to McCartney. Well, exactly. All right. So. <laughs> How did that come about? How did you get the uh, chance to work with McCartney? Uh, were you actually working with McCartney, or were you just giving them the tapes to just? Uh... Oh no, no. He, he, he and Linda came down, and we we worked we worked together. How did it come up? It would have been a record company thing. They they would have heard, you know, somebody would have been saying something and somebody said, well, you should get these guys in the Art of Noise to, 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 to do a remix uh, or whatever. But well, no, we did the whole thing. Um, uh, I look, well, this is a funny thing to say, but I, I didn't have a great time working with Paul. Paul and I didn't really hit it off. <laughs> in what way? No, it's not a great thing to say and fess up. We just didn't hit it off. What can I say? We were never going to go down the pub together and have a drink. Let's put it that way. Did you? However, however Linda, yeah. Linda and I got on like a house on fire. Yeah, everyone says only nice things about Linda. Oh, really? Oh, good. Because yeah, I mean, I spoke to Hugh Padgham, who worked with him around this time on on this next album, Press to Play, and he didn't right. know me either. Did you make any criticisms of Paul at all? No, 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 not at all. It was just, just, uh, it was just his attitude and the way he went about things that, that he, he made you feel uncomfortable. Look, I work with some big people, and, and it didn't really matter to me who you are. To be honest, you're all artists, yeah, yeah. But, but Paul, Paul continually made you feel that you were working with Paul McCartney, yeah, yeah. And it was like that's not necessary, Paul. I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know you. You, you're, you, you're a genius. But you don't. Give a specific example of when he did that. No, yeah, it's just a general attitude, to be honest. Well, there's not, nothing one thing that I would pull out yeah. and, and say, but it was just a general attitude that you, you were very conscious that you were working with Paul McCartney. Whereas with Linda, she could have been like the girl next door, sort of thing. Yeah. But so, that was not, 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 not the case with Paul. So was he sat with you while you were doing the mix, or would he just like give his feedback to what you've been doing? Just give his feed, wander in and give his feedback and wander out. It was, I I, I didn't enjoy my time with him. It's it's interesting because like, it does sound like an Art of Noise kind of mix, but of all the the McCartney songs to do an Art of Noise kind of be working off, My Carnival seems like a weird choice, this kind of mid-70s kind of... Honestly, we were clutching at straws doing that. I, I remember the, the, the horrible sample of, of his voice by Carnival. I remember that. It's, it's, no, it's not not my favourite time. It's a really didn't enjoy that. But enjoyed working with Dwayne Eddy much more. And at this point, 
Uh, a bit of a slight detour this one uh, music video director Jim Yukich talking about a rather cool job he had EMI in the 1980s so um, going back a little bit first of all with um, Victor Spinetti and Roy Kinnear did you get any good Beatles anecdotes about filming how well you just yeah just talking about nothing nothing I didn't really know I was actually on the Beatle committee I don't know if you knew that the Beatle when I was committee at, Yes, when I was at EMI. Um, they had a Beatle committee. Who else was on the Beatle committee? Well, it was like there was, um, you know, like the head of A&R and Rupert Perry was on it. And a couple of people from England were on it. And uh, Barrett was on it, which was the guy that did the books recording the Beatles and the Abbey Road, you know. And so there's like, like maybe six or seven people that were on it. And I got on it because I was a Beatle fanatic. When I came to Capitol and I worked in the tower, I couldn't believe that they didn't have any Beatle footage. And I thought, are you kidding me? This is the Beatles American record label and there's no video footage. So I went, you know, kind of scoured back then without the internet letters and things that everybody who I possibly could get in touch with. I found a couple of people who were huge collectors that were, I was turned on to that gave me stuff or, you know, and, and showed me stuff and gave me stuff. So I made notes. I, I had a list of everything that they did, every TV show, every, every, you know, performance, every, everything that was filmed, I had made a master list. And, and this was kind of almost before Excel and all the programs you get on a computer. So you, it was like handwritten lists. And so, because I knew that they put me on a committee because I, they thought that a video might be the future and they were going to, you know, and I pushed to release all this stuff and it, it just never got, you know, they, they, they thought, well, let's wait, let's wait. And the Beatles wanted to wait. I met with the management. I met with Shrimpton who managed Paul at the time. And I met with, uh, you know, Neil Aspinall a number of times and all those guys. And you couldn't get them to do anything because they had in their mind, the long and winding road project, which ended up being right. the anthology. So I think it was and, still in the eighties, was it? You're talking about. Yeah. 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 And so they, they had this project in mind long-term, so they didn't want to release all this stuff because there was an album in America, and I don't know if it came out in England, called The Beatles One, and it was like all their number one hits. Yes, yes, it did, yes, huge. And, and I had videos for every song, okay? And I said, we should put out a Laserdisc or a video cassette or something that's the video equivalent of the album because we have every song. And they and the Beatles didn't want to allow it because they didn't want to let them use the footage, and they they wanted to save it for the Long Winding Road project, and it was kind of a, a legal nightmare, and so it was just given up on. But it would have been great back then as when when it mattered more. I mean, if you put it on now, it, people aren't going to sit and watch on TV that much the Beatles like that because they can do, see it on YouTube. But back then, it would have been like groundbreaking to have a a laser disc or an album that's the Beatles number one hits and everything's on video as well. Yeah. I remember buying a bootleg video, like a VHS video that had all uh-huh. the videos on it. And it was like this treasure trove of stuff that you, you just could not see. It was, you couldn't see it anywhere. <laughs> like MTV or VH1 would never show Beatles videos because they couldn't, they weren't allowed to, unless they were promoting no. something like the anthology. And then for like a small right. window, you could get to watch Strawberry Fields forever and then it'd be gone again. Now I have like the pristine copies of all those videos, which is great. Although they're, yeah. I think most of them are out now. But I, I watch YouTube and 
I still see stuff that's not that good. And I, I'm always tempted to say, well, I'll put mine up there. But then I thought, well, then the Beatles would get mad because, you know, they, they come looking for me because they, they did that at one point. If you had a Beatles album that wasn't to you, like if you bought it from something, if they saw it in a picture or something, they'd come and get it. <laughs> you know, like a gold record. I'm talking yeah, about a gold yeah, record. Yeah. If, if, if you had one, they would, they would track you down. You know, I mean, that's how serious their legal department was. But anyhow, I was also, you know, a lot of times because I was such a huge Beatle fan and I knew this, a lot of times the legal department at Capitol would bring me bootlegs and say, listen to this and tell me if it's the Beatles. Okay. And I'd have to, I'd listen to stuff and say, no, that's not the Beatles or the, oh, that could be, that sounds like Paul, you know? And so I was kind of like their in-house Beatle <laughs> expert, which, which is kind of weird from the Genesis thing. But Phil and I used to talk a lot about the Beatles and I sent him a lot of things that I had of the Beatles. I actually have like, and I've had for a long time and I think I sent it to Phil years ago. I have Sergeant Pepper, the, all the tracks, the, you know, the elements, uh, so you, you, yeah, so you just hear the yeah. vocals, you just hear the vocals, you just hear this, you just hear that. And, and so I have like a lot of those kind of things. When I was working for EMI, I got a chance when I'd come over, every time I'd come over there, I'd meet with Alan Parsons and go into Abbey Road and listen to Beatles stuff with him. And he'd pull tracks up and down. Wow. And, in Abbey Road. Oh, that'd be in bad. Abbey Road. Yeah. It was yeah. a blast. Cause, cause he would, you know, he would, you know, bring up the drums by himself or, yeah. or oh my God. you know, that's, and, and, that's my dream come true. That would be. Yeah. It was, it's amazing. Cause when you listen to that, you realize how important George Martin was Yes, because the stuff is good and the Beatles were really talented, but George Martin made something phenomenal out of what they did. So did you get anything for being in the Beatles committee? Did you get like a badge or no? Somebody to say I'm in the Beatles because you want to you want everyone to know I'm in the Beatles committee, the official. I know nobody. Nobody even to be right. Nobody. (laughs) It's like this amazing thing that's like you can't tell anyone about because no, that's not public. It's just. But not not to them, but because they they didn't like capital EMI that much in America because of the all the re you know the releases of the the albums that were chopped up. You know, in America, they, you know, yes, you, you yes. put out, you put out Revolver there or something and, and they, America yeah, would take like six. Yeah. yeah. They take, they take all these tracks off so that they can make another album and make more money, you know? So, so the Beatles, in fact, do you, do you happen to know what the Capitol Records logo looks like? It's like this kind of curvy yes. C. Yes. Okay. It's like and it's kind of, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's definitely a style of lettering of a font, right? Yeah. The, the, and it's oval shape and it's got the capital. Yeah. When I went to the meeting at Paul's office in Soho, uh, I had to use the Lou and I, and they said, Oh, it's upstairs on the left. I went upstairs and it's, it said men and women and it was oval and the capital <laughs> font. <laughs> so I, as soon as I saw it, I thought, "Uh oh, I'm in trouble." Because you know, this is this is what he thinks is that we're the toilet. Basically. Uh, okay, you know? yeah, <laughs> you know, so it's better subtle messaging there. Yeah, yeah. Actually, we should probably get off the Beatles. It's an '80s podcast, and we're talking about a '60s band. But I mean, I could get lost uh-huh. in the Beatles for hours. But oh, um, go me, go. me as well. Yeah. What's your favorite Beatles album? Quickly. My favorite Beatles album. Yeah. Um, it's tough because I like little bits of every one, but I, I, the English version of Revolver, I like probably the best. Exactly. It's hard to see because American albums are so bad, you know, until you get the pepper, <laughs> they, they chop things up, you know, but I think, 
I think the, the Revolver, because it changed things so drastically. I, I also love the Abbey Road just because of the medley, but that's it's mostly a Paul album, Abbey Road. You know, side, and yeah, so, side two, especially, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, so, but you Paul know, and George Martin, yeah, exactly. But yeah, yeah that's so it's it's, it's kind of hard to say oh, this is your favorite, this, but Revolver to me, because of the different styles and because of it, you know, George with the Indian thing coming a little bit stronger, and and if, then you add this, I mean, the like I said, the English version way better. Junior Mendelssohn, cool, blimey, the kids are so loud. And finally, we have producer-engineer Julian Mendelssohn. The full episode will be out soon. These are just the McCartney excerpts from the uh, from the interview. So talking about a couple of 12-inch mixes in the 80s, like the time of press to play, and then daring to venture into the 90s. You've got to be fucking kidding. With Off the Ground, which he produced. Here is Julian. Okay, let's go on to 1986. And, um, yes, Working with Paul McCartney for the first time. Um, I he did worked up the twelve inches, didn't I? Yeah, for for tracks that weren't actually singles. What was your, it's, it's not true and tough on a tightrope. Two songs I absolutely love. Um, yeah, they're, they're really good tracks, actually. Aren't they? I, I, I love the album. I've interviewed Hugh Pageant, who produced it, who, who doesn't like the album, didn't have a great experience. Speaking to Gary, why Mac, didn't he have a good great experience? Uh, he didn't particularly like the songs he was working on. He didn't think much of them. Oh. Also, he didn't particularly get on with Paul. Ah, oh, Paul can be quite difficult, I think. Yeah, there's a famous anecdote he's often told, he said in the interview as well, that, that he was just questioning a guitar solo or something, and Paul turned around and said, how many number one singles have you written, kind of thing. Oh, yeah. Well, then Paul had a bit of a... The ego did come out occasionally. Did you have any of those kind of moments with him? Uh, there were a couple of times when Linda, when we'd come in in the morning and Linda would say, just be careful this morning, he's got out the wrong side of bed. So <laughs> when he got but in out... general, he, he was a really nice bloke. Yeah. yeah. And you know, um, a few years ago, he did a gig out here. And uh, I took, oh, I've just got to tell you this story and I might tear yeah. up. Oh, okay, good. Um, my... Uh, I said, oh, I said to my wife, should we take Ruby, the daughter, to the, the gig? And she said, oh, Ruby would love to see it. Because I get free tickets and uh, through Wix, the keyboard player. Yes, yes, you've got a long association. You know, Wick, yeah, yeah, Paul Wickham. Yeah, yeah, he was on the Nick Kershaw album and all that stuff. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so, and then I suddenly thought, we've got this friend, uh, Laura, who's Ruby's best friend, who's had a really tough life with divorces and together mothers and just a lovely girl some sort of a father figure to her I thought I should take I should take Laura she'd never been to a gig in her life you know never been to a gig never had anything like this I'll get another ticket so I rang with she got a ticket so we turn, turn up at six o'clock at the gig and uh, we're waiting in the special waiting room for guests and it was only only us and another guy called Jimmy Jimmy McGeechee who's a Scottish bloke who played the drums Mulliver Kintyre, <laughs> who I'm now really good friends with. We met him and just amazing, isn't it? So Wick says, come on, we're going up to see Paul now in the dressing room. We go in, Paul just rushes towards me and gives me a massive hug and then he hugs the girls and he's so nice to the girls and I'm going, the tears are coming out of my eyes. Yeah. It was just a moment of just amazingness because here's this girl who's had not a life, really, meeting one of the most famous people in the world and he's being lovely to her 
you know, it was just, it was an amazing, see, I've got tears now. Yeah. It was just an amazing moment. And he was, he's lost all the ego thing, which could have been, you know, could be difficult sometimes. Just a lovely, lovely guy. And oh, I will never forget that. Laura's never forgotten it. Because it was a big, special moment in her life, you know. He seems to have that level of success, but he's aware that when he meets people, it's not in an egotistical way, but he knows it's going to be a highlight of their day, week, month, year. Yeah. He's aware yeah. of that. He seems to be aware of that. Yeah. Not in a big-headed way, but in like, I'm going to recognise how important this is to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's dead, dead right. And he yeah. really turned it on for Ruby and Laura. Got them T-shirts and bags and this and sweatshirts and this and that. And yeah, you have this and oh yeah. You know, it was just that's, brilliant. That's really And lovely. then the gig. The gig, oh my God, the gig was mind-blowing. The guy was 75 when he did this. Uh, 73 or 75. What year was this? 2019 or I think it was 2019 or... 70s, yeah, 77. Yeah. 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 It was just amazing. He didn't put a note wrong. You know, his voice was still good. And he famously never drinks water during a gig. He plays for like nearly three hours and never takes that. any water. Didn't notice that. Yeah. Wixie was still good. I did congratulate Wix at the end of it. I said, oh, you can still play then. <laughs> Because Paul can't do everything live, can he? He can the studio, but he can't do it all live. Yeah, yeah. Right, back to anyway. 86, those two mixes. Do you know why you did those mixes? Because like I said, they were they, were, they ended up being B-sides. They weren't even um, singles. Uh, I don't know. I was the I was the man to go to for a tw- an extended mix, I think. I, I don't know where it came from. And was he very on hand? With I don't that? even know whether Paul knew I was doing them, to be true. As I say, was he there with you doing the mix? No, 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 he wasn't there. Would you get notes on it in terms of like you do a version and he? No. No. So he wasn't that. Cause I spoke to Gary because Gary did um, a mix for him at the same time and he was kind of there with him and he said it wasn't, a, again, it wasn't a particularly pleasant experience. Yeah, uh, Gary, some don't know. Uh, anyway. No, go on, no, go on, finish that thought. Uh, no, I'm not going to go any further. Oh, you Gary, can't. sometimes. Gary. Even though I was not very diplomatic. <laughs> I mean, the first time I met Nick Kershaw, he walked in the studio first day and I said, oh, Pete, he's even shorter than me. <laughs> and of course, Nick took total, I was being serious and took it very personally, took Peter Collins aside and said, I can't work with that guy. <laughs> Anyway, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what Paul would have been like in those days. It might have been really difficult, but um, you know, once I realised that I knew what I was doing, I sort of I could put up with difficult people. When I was learning in the late in the seventy nine, eighty, and eighty one at Sam, I couldn't handle dealing with difficult people. It was a nightmare. Trevor accepted, of course. So, um, yeah, I don't know whether Gary was quite as, as good at handling that sort of stuff. So he'd be quite direct. He'd say, I don't like that. Or... Yeah, Gary was not direct. He wasn't direct. No, I was direct, but I, I got away with it for some reason. I'm not sure. Right. Uh, do you remember doing those remixes? I mean, if you hear them now, 
Because yeah, I've, I've got them. Hang on, uh, Paul. It's McCartney. not true. It's got. It's, like, you compare it to the. It's the, not true. It's got, it's, it sounds like it's got the old gated reverb, Hugh Padgham's gated yeah. reverb on the drums. No, excuse me, that wasn't Hugh Padgham's. Oh, God, what? It was ours. Explain no, But we used to do it too, you know. Okay, Gary. so he just, he just popularised it. <laughs> <laughs> a sense of writ. Yeah. But was that the, the the reason for doing it? Because it was like a Hugh Pageant production. I'm gonna do that sound. I didn't even know it was Hugh Pageant. Oh, okay, you didn't know. Okay. Oh, I don't know whether it might have said it on the bot on the tape box. I don't know. So when you're doing a remix like that, the producer's usually not a part party to it, not a part of it at all. Usually. No, apart from if it's the Petrop Boys or Go West. Right. So the artist, if they're the producers. Yeah. yeah. Normally, I just get sense stuff. Okay, yeah. so we've done the. If I'm going to quickly ask you about McCartney and working on off the ground, because uh, I'm a big yeah. McCartney fan. Um, so, how did you get the opportunity to to work with him to actually produce him? Well, me, me and Wixie had produced that. Mick Wix is his musical director. Had been for years and years, and we, me and Wixie did Tasman Archer together. You know, Sleeping Satellite. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which I have to say, probably I was very proud of that in the end. I blame you for the moonlit sky And the dream that died With the eagle's flight I blame you for the moonlit nights When I wonder why Are the sea still dry? Don't blame me, sleeping satellite Actually, can listen to that and not... Oh, no, there are a few mistakes, but anyway... <laughs> Like lurch for those. Put everything into that, actually, that song. Absolutely everything. Because I didn't get the gig in the first place. Uh, I think I think it was Pete Woodruff got the gig. Because I heard the, the demo and I said, I want that. I want to do that track. That's when Annie was managing me. And anyway, she came back a few weeks later and said, no, they've gone with somebody else. I think it was Pete Woodruff. Anyway, about six months later, they came back and said, oh, it didn't quite work out with who we we're doing it with do you want to have a go and that, and I was just like obsessed because I knew that was a hit single yeah I was dead sure that was a hit single I was never so sure in my life anyway Wixie after we'd had that hit with Tasman Wixie must have mentioned to McCartney why don't you give Julian a go and that's how it all came about so I went down and saw them met Paul and Linda got on really well and uh, that's how it all came about so when you produced the album did you produce a whole bunch of different tracks? Or did, at what point did you have an album formed in terms of these are the 12 tracks that are going to be the album? Because Not until nearly towards the end. So there's Because there's B-sides, like there's an EP with Hope of Deliverance, and I think the three B-sides on that... Down, down by the river and all that sort of stuff. Well, on, on that particular single, it's Big Boys Bickering, Kicked Around No More and Long Leather. Oh, God. I'm all alone, said she. No one to phone, no one to touch me. On the way, said the man in long leather coat as he started his car. 
understood it. He smiled as he hung up his long leather coat on the back of the door. Three tracks. I've heard any of those for years. Although they're three fantastic tracks, and I think they should have been on the album. We did 25 tracks all together because what happened when we first started off, we did it in the way that I would have done a Tasman Archer record, which was a lot of programming, a lot of computer work, not a lot of live work. And Paul got, got really impatient with that. I mean, we made a great record out of it. I think Bob Krauser mixed it in the end. I can't remember what it's called, and I wish I had a copy of it. I thought it was a great record, but it wasn't what Paul wanted. He wanted the band. This was a chance for his live band to have their moment, you know, on a on record. So you're saying you already finished a version of the record? Of one song. There was one song we started. Okay. And it was it was quite we spent a lot of time doing you know computer stuff and sequencing and all that. Paul didn't like want that. He wanted it all live, you know. Was that song still on the album, but in a different version? No, no. There was a special version of it later on. Because the engineer that I had with me, Bob Krauser, did a mix after we'd finished the album. I if thought you... it was a great track. She's got an American what he wanted the whole plan changed after that instead of doing 10 or 15 tracks he said oh no let's go in it was set up in the where in the stables across the other side of the yard uh and we'll we'll just record lots of songs live we'll just choose the best out of those whichever one turned out best and did that disappoint you then there'd be less actual production yeah it did disappoint me a bit because it wasn't the way i normally would work yeah yeah, because it does sound like it does sound like it's got like a live feel to it, and it does sound kind of not typical of your usual kind of. Production yeah, it threw me a bit actually. Threw me a bit. Yeah. So, how do you feel about the album now? Oh, it's a lot. You know, now I can appreciate it. It's a couple of tracks I'm not too keen on, but most of them I quite enjoy. Yeah. Do you like Biker Like an Icon? Yeah, I heard that the other day in the car. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. Can I just end on a couple? Old Nerd Girl I like. 
Yeah, I think Golden Earth. Line Dark Open Sea I liked. Come on, people just drives me nuts because I had a fantastic rough mix of that. I never I never got back to it. Ugh. What was different? I don't know. Something was different. I never got it again. Uh, really annoyed me. Just so annoying when that happens. So you, you get a rough mix and you're happy with it and then it gets mixed again. And you have to do some overdubs on it and you know, I can't remember. You know, with Pro Tools, at least it's there. It's just remembered every time you finish working on it. It'd be end of the with day. a tape machine and a mixing desk, it's never there again. That's frustrating. It's just it's, yeah. it's soul destroying. And there you have it. Thank you to all the guests for the interviews over the last year or two. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff there, I think. I think McCartney's 80s are vastly underrated. There's so much good stuff there. Ebony and Ivory was actually my entrance into Beatlesville, if you will. My marijuana to the Beatles heroin. <laughs> That's a very weird analogy. So what should we do at the end? I want to do something to, um, to mark my love of McCartney. I don't know, Paul. Oh, yes, I do. We'll do a top ten. He bought out a, a compilation, Pure McCartney, a two-CD and a four-CD set of his best. Somebody in his office, some young person in his office had compiled his playlist. Oh, I quite like that. And he thought he'd release it. And as every McCartney fan knows, you couldn't have a Pure McCartney compilation without some B-sides. There's gold in our hills. He's always done fantastic B-sides. And there was a single B-side on the compilation. It really annoyed me. So I think I'll do a top ten... Paul McCartney B-Sides, my top 10 of the 80s. It was released in the 80s, not recorded in the 80s, because there's some some recorded in the 80s that came out in the 90s on the Flame and Pie single. Some really good stuff. They're love songs. There's Love Comes Tumbling Down, Love Mix, Same Love. I love this house. I love I Love This House. That's a great track. That's so 80s. Uh, but these are all songs that released as B-Sides, original B-Sides, not album tracks, in the 80s. And they're going by UK single release as well. So here we go. The top 10 Paul McCartney 80s B-sides. Number 10. My Carnival. Uh, it's Wings, really. Recorded in 75, released 10 years later as B-sides of Spies Like Us. Number 9. Secret Friend, 1980, B-side to Temporary Secretary. A 12 inch single. Number eight. It's not true. 1986, B-side to press. Number seven. Oh, oh, to a koala bear. 1983, B-side to say, say, say. Number six. I'll give you a ring. Should be in a musical, this. 
First recorded in the 70s, finished and released in 1982. B-side to Take It Away. Number five. To me, you are the loveliest thing I've seen all day. You the loveliest thing. Recorded in 86, released in 89 as B-side to Figure of Eight. And then only on a CD single. Madness. Should have been a single. Number four. Rain Clouds, co-write with Denny Lane, 1980, released in 1982, B-side of Ebony Ivory. Is this a song he was working on after he found out Lennon had died? Number three. You don't feel right when I come on strong. Don't get it wrong. Tough on a Tightrope, 1986, B-side to Only Love Remains, co-write with Eric Stewart at 10cc. Number two. Back on my feet, 1987. B-side, Once Upon a Long Ago, co-write with Elvis Costello, and again should have been a single. Number one. Oh, Flying to My Home, 1989. B-side, My Brave Face. How did this not make flowers in the dirt? How is this not a single? Absolute pop perfection. And there you have it. God, what an album that would have made. Is this a sign that Maka valued B-sides, or that he was a terrible judge of his own material? So off the ground is an example of this. I mentioned Julian Mendelssohn, the singles, um, the B-sides on the singles. There's um, the Hope of Deliverance single, three tracks on there. Long Leather Coat, Big Boys Bickering, Kick Trying No More, better than pretty much everything on the Off the Ground album, in my opinion. And I think the B-sides bonus material for that album would have made a better album than Off the Ground. But, uh, yeah, so thank you for listening to this one. I enjoyed doing this. Thank you to all the guests again, and check out the full interviews in the 80sography archive, should such a thing exist. And to play us out, ooh, well, this, this, all the great songs I've been playing, this, I think, is the best song he's done in the last 30 years. This is a masterpiece of a song. And it was kind of tucked away on one of his Fireman albums. Electric Arguments, it's a good album. There's three absolute pop gems on there that you should have saved for a McCartney album. There's Sing the Changes, Highway, which has got a real killer chorus, and this one, Dance Till We're High. If this was released in 83, I love Peter Pipes at Peace, but if this was released in 1983, Christmas 83, this would have been number one for four weeks, guarantee it. This is beautiful. So listen, enjoy, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.
Jim Ukich. Jim Ukich. Not you, bitch. Ukich. Jim Ukich. Jim Ukich. Jim Ukich. I can't call him that. Jim Ukich. Perfect. What's it about, seriously? Please. It's um, the tapes to my new album go missing, and I've got a friend who works for me who used to be a criminal, and people suspect him, and I don't, and that's loosely the plot. <laughs> and then I get into bed with John Travolta. <laughs> we just washed the hair. All you want is a handyman, and all you want is quick service. Because I'm a house owner. I'm a house owner. It may be worth something someday. I hear water going through the pipes. I don't actually like sitting down music. Music is ideas.